Uh, we've, like I say, in First Corinthians, we've been dealing with uh, liberties that Christians have. Paul had liberties, just like all the other Christians, and yet we saw that uh, Paul refrained from these liberties sometimes, maybe from overusing them, if it were to stumble somebody else. If it were to cause a stumbling block, then he would uh, maybe take that freedom that he had in Christ and set it aside for that person. Paul was willing to give himself up for others. Now that's an incredible thought, to actually give yourselves up. And that's what we are called to do. Forget yourselves, take up the cross and follow me. Paul did that. And uh, he being just like a, a man, he gave himself up so that he could win some to Christ, as 1 Corinthians 9 said. Uh, he would be a Jew to the Jews, he would be a Gentile to the Gentiles, whatever it took so that he could get an audience to listen to the Gospel and still not sin. Um, he had this attitude for the sake of the Gospel. He didn't live for himself, but he lived for Christ and he lived for others. And today we're going to leave that text in 1 Corinthians and we're going to go to another text. So it's a different text, but and not being in 1 Corinthians, but it will be along the same lines as the subject that we have dealt with in the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 9, dealing with giving yourselves up for others. And we saw Paul as the example, but we know always the elite example is Jesus Christ. It is He who we truly follow. But yet He gives examples through uh, godly men that we can also follow too. But Christ is the very one. So that same flow of thought is moving on as we celebrate Christ's birth this week, this Sunday here before Christmas. Now next week we get a double dose uh, of uh, Christmas because it's the 26th. It's right after Christmas. So you can't imagine just kind of lightly going by that one. And so we have a special thing happening there. If uh, some of you don't know, Bob uh, has come up with, um, I guess you could say, how do we term this? It's not necessarily a musical, because we're going to be doing music beforehand, but this is going to be uh, the book of Ruth, read in its entirety by different people acting those parts out. Am I right, Bob? Kind of a biblical drama. That's the word. Biblical drama. A narrative. I like that. Does that sound good? And so we'll tie that in then with how that fits in with our gospel, the birth of Christ and, and everything else. And so that, uh, that sounds exciting. Uh, I think it's the first time we've ever done anything like that. And so thank you for getting that, that together. And I, uh, I know that uh, there will be many people helping out on that. But uh, we look back at Paul and we see the example there. Now we look in Philippians chapter 2, which is where we're going to be at today. And this is the, I think, the epitome of what it is to give yourself up. And it's Christ giving Himself all the way to the point of His death. And I think this is a glorious summary of His birth his life, his death, and the glory that was to come after that being the exaltation. And that's found in this little text that we're dealing with today. What a summary this is. What the Gospel is, is presented in this aspect here. In this little section, Philippians 2, 6-11. through One of the greatest texts in all the Bible. I looked at different commentaries by different people and almost every one of them said there is no more supreme text in the Bible summing up the gospel of Christ as far as His birth all the way to His glorification in just a, sh- a few short verses. And I feel very inadequate in presenting such a passage as this. So we're just going to read it and I'm going to walk off the stage and that's going to be it. Well, we can't do that, can we? Uh, But I will do the best that I can with the Holy Spirit 
praying that that will teach us and change us more to be like Christ than we were when we came in here. Does that sound okay? Let's all stand and let's read this text. Starting at, I say verse 6, but really verse 5 is a good place because this is where it brings us into play too. Let this mind be in you. It's talking about humility, loneliness. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. And we thank You for Your Holy Spirit as He leads us today in such a glorious, wonderful text. In Jesus' name, Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because God is glorified. Wow. This section deals with the condescension to the earth that Christ had. It's known as the Incarnation. It's known as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became incarnated in the flesh. He was veiled in flesh. That sounds like a song we just sang. You sing all those songs, those Christmas songs? I think they are truly tremendous because the doctrine in them is so sound whenever it talks about this incarnation of Christ and what He came for. He came as our substitute. And this is the essence of what it means to be a servant. This can only be done in the Incarnation. Now, Augustine, and that's going back to uh, uh, late 300s and 400s, he summed up the Incarnation of Christ. I want to read this. The Maker of man became man that He, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that He, the bread, might be hungry that He the fountain might thirst, that He the light might sleep, that He the way might be wearied by the journey, that He the truth might be accused by false witnesses, that He the judge of the living and the dead might be brought to trial by a corrupt mortal judge, that He, justice itself, might be condemned by the unjust, that He discipline itself might be scourged with whips, that He, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross, that He, courage personified, might be weakened, and that He, security, might be wounded, and that He, the very life itself, might die. Then Augustine went on to say this, to endure these, and similar indignities for us to free us unworthy creatures, He who existed as the Son of God before all the ages, without a beginning, designed it to become the Son of Man in these years. He did this though He submitted to such great evils for our sake. He had done no evil, and although we who were the recipients of so much good at His hands have done nothing but evil. What a great God. Is this an incredible plan? The plan of the ages. We get to look at this in this text today. Starting at verse 6. Who being in the form of God. Being, He left that glorious, exalted position where He was at in the heavens 
to come to the sin-infested earth knowing what it was going to do to Him. And He did it for the Father. And He did it for us. Now, it says, who being. Being. What's the word being here? It's a different Greek word than you'd ordinarily use for being. The being here is the very essence. It's the very nature. It's the very person of who He is. His unchangeable nature. Being. Who being. He's very God. God of very God, right? We have to think of His deity here. So we have to go back to Matthew 1.23. I think we sang this in some songs. One song in particular, remember? 123 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And he walked amongst his people on the earth, right here. We know He's with us today as He resides in this temple. That's even better, isn't it? His very essence. But He, he was God. Eight, John 8.58 Before Abraham was, I am, or I existed. He was just, He was being. That was Him. I am that I am. I am. Uh, he is the self-existent one. And Hebrews 1, 2 and uh, 3 Hebrews chapters 1, verses 2 and 3. He is the radiance of God's glory, radiating from His glory, and the very image or icon of God, the exact representation of God. Not just a a like God, but being the very essence, the very nature, radiating from Him, He had the very glory of God. And in Colossians 1.15, He is the direct representation of the eternal God. Now, that's who Jesus was, who being in the form of God. Now, when you think of form, you think of some kind of structures, or you think they're going to put the forms down to put uh, to lay down concrete, to put a basement, right? To put the forms up there. It's, you think of something solid, something tangible, something physical you can put your hands on. The outward, right? It, it has an outward look. That's what you think of when you think of the word form. Well, the word here in the Greek is going to be different than that. It's morphe. And it means something inward. We're talking about the very characteristic uh, dealing with nature, the very qualities. So this emphasizes the inward part, who being in the form of God. Not just an outward here. We're talking about the very inward part of Him. So that is why we have to explain form. Our English comes short of it. Uh, when you think of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, one of my all-time favorite verses says this, But we all with unveiled faith, beholding as in a mirror, really examining and looking, the glory of the Lord. We see the glory right here in His truth, the Word. Are being transformed. There you have that root word, morphe. We're being changed inwardly. Inwardly. Right now, as we are into this Word, if we're paying attention, we're listening and we're reading this and letting God's Word sink into our minds, we are being changed right this instant. Do you know that? It's being happy. You can't see it. You can't even feel it. We are being transformed into the same image. Image of God. Image of Christ. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? And that's that word form. Morphe. Inward characteristically. We are becoming like Him in His nature, in His attitudes, in His characteristics. You think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, and on. Wow. That's what's happening. The very character of God, though, is found in Christ here in this Philippians passage. Who being in the very nature, the very characteristic of God. And then we get this next phrase. 
and this can be quite troubling sometimes of trying to figure out what it means, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Um, the word means to lay hold on to, to grasp, to really reach out and just grasp but try to get a hold of it. And he says he wasn't doing that. Uh, it can have a couple of meanings there, and maybe they're both right. Being equal with God was not something Christ had to cling to or hold on to because He was. That was His very nature. He didn't have to cling on to that. That's one idea. It was already His nature, so He didn't have to do that. Being equal with God was not something to be clung to. He didn't have to worry about losing that, that deity. But also, it means to be willing to give it up or let go of it in the way that this is set up. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was willing to give up something and to let go of it. Something. What is it? Well, we know it can't be His deity because if He gives up His deity, He's no longer God. Now we have a problem, don't we? He gave up being God? No way. We know in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And that means before the face of God. Or just like right there, face to face. He was with God. He was face to face with God. That means in reality He is God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He continues. He's eternal. He's eternal God. He can't ever give that up or let go of it. But I think we can understand this when we see the Greek word do not consider it robbery to be with God. Kenosis. Robbery. Kenosis. An emptying. There's an emptying. What, what did he empty? What, what, what's happening here? Well, to empty means to pour out. You ever heard of a kenosis? A pouring out of, an emptying. He gave up his privileges. Some people might think that he gave up his deity, his nature, but that cannot be. He was still God, and not just man. So what did he pour out? Well, uh, this has been said. This I think by the early church fathers when they had to work out the sense of 100% man, 100% God, they really struggled with this. Wouldn't any human struggle with this? He's God and He's fully man. How does that work? Well, they said this, He became what He was not without ceasing to be what He was. Now, should I say that again? Yeah, I have to say for myself. He became what he was not. He was not man yet. Without ceasing to be what he was. He he did not cease to be God while he took on being man. And to this day, do you know he's still fully man? And he's still fully God. He he was there. And there was an addition to what he was. Not that he was lacking. He was never lacking that, but that's all part of the plan. And so that's added on to him. What a thought. John 17.4, he prays for something to be brought back to him. He emptied himself. And then in John 17, which is the great prayer... The intercessory prayer. And he says this. And this prayer is for him, then it's for us. But he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, your chosen ones, may be with me where I am, that they, what? May behold my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world that they may behold my glory. He limited His glory when He came to earth just by looking at all the things that happened even at His birth. You know, the, the manger, 
coming in the way that he did, a lowly way. He didn't enter it by coming and entering as a king. No, he comes in as a little baby, born to parents who were not the most extremely well off. Um, He's a carpenter's son. He grows up that way. We know all through his ministry that he is discounted by most people. Uh, His own receive him not. And then the way that he died. um, Think about this. But he veiled his glory, incarnate deity. He veiled his glory. We know that in uh, Matthew that he actually peeled back his flesh so that Peter, James, and John could see a little glimpse of his glory. But he wasn't showing that to everybody. Then he sealed it back up. He veiled it. What a glimpse they had. I'm sure that that had to be hard to go back down to earth again. <laughs> Come down to the, the, the reality. But uh, that, that glory was something. Did you know that physically there was really no beauty in him? Nothing attractive in the sense that he was a Hollywood-like star and, and he would be drawn by the way that he dressed and the way that he looked and his hair was perfect all the time. You know, you, you can imagine that would have brought people, you know, man, if you can have the right kind of clothes and the right kind of speech and the great education that people have and people can be drawn to them. But in Isaiah 53, which I think is definitely speaking about at his death, but I think it also could mean the way he was in his appearance to an extent. Uh, Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. Not attractive. Not, not that he's ugly, but... Uh, we don't know. It, it just says, you know, it's not the attraction there. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. Definitely that's the way it would be at His crucifixion, whenever He is a bloody mess. But He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. So we know that the he kind of empties himself of his glory, of, of his beauty. He gave up a lot to be treated the way that he was treated. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. A base verse that I think we're probably very familiar with, and it's it's a great verse at this time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, as though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I think it's more than just uh, physical things. Uh, he gave the treasures that were in heaven, all the great glory that was there, the treasure there, to become poor, uh, to empty himself to come here. The riches gave up the riches to come to a humble means as he did. He gave up his own will while on the earth, always doing his Father's will. What is it, Jesus, that you want to do? What is it that you desire to do? The Father's will. That it be the Father's will. That's what his business was all about, the Father's will. He gave up his authority and his omnipotence and his omniscience and omnipresence to be here. He gave up his honor And the face-to-face relationship with the Father, He gave that up. He gave Himself up for the sake of the Gospel. That should remind us of where we have been in the book of Corinthians, shouldn't it? Are you willing to give yourself up as Paul was willing to give up his freedoms for the sake of the lost? He gave up his privileges. He had all the privileges of the universe. And yet he laid most of those aside. Now he could have used them at any time. But he chose to lay most of them there. We know he did miracles. Many miracles. So he didn't give up everything. He was still God and fully man, but he only chose to do those when the Father told him to do that. He satisfied the Father in saving us from our sin. Ultimately, that's where... Yes, He did die for our sins. Why did He come here? He died for our sins. But what is the most important thing that He did? To 
satisfy the Father. To satisfy the wrath that the Father had because of our sin. And Jesus satisfied him of that. Now he set aside his kingly robes, put them aside, and took on the rags of a slave. Even got down on his knees and washed the feet of the apostles. The incarnation. This is the Christmas story. Now we go on to verse 7. He took the form of a slave. He made himself of no reputation. We've already covered that, right? Going into verse 7. There's the emptiness. There's the kenosis there. Taking the form of a slave. There's that word again. I think we've talked about it before. We already talked about it in 2 Corinthians. Paul became a slave. And he said, well, my version has bond servant, a servant. And so why are you saying slave, Dennis? Because that's the word. Uh, There's a difference between slave and servant. And that's the word we have to take here. We are identified as slaves all throughout Scripture. We are slaves of Christ. Do you like that? If it makes you angry, check it out. Because that's really what we are. We are slaves. Paul so often says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Well, he's saying doulos. He's saying doulos here. That's slave. If the word is not doulos there, and back in the 1600s they had trouble with uh, slavery and they were doing it, and so rather than translating it as slaves, they put bondservants there to lighten the load, and ever since then all the translations have pretty well followed suit with that too. Occasionally you'll see the word slave, Romans 6. It seems like I've talked about this the last few weeks, but it keeps coming up. That's why I'm telling you. Everywhere you look throughout Scripture, hundreds of times it comes up, slaves. And so here we are. So if you take that and glory in it, fantastic, because that's what Christ considered Himself to be. He made him, He emptied Himself. He took on the form. And that's that word form again. Remember? Morphe. What is morphe? The inner quality. The very inner nature He had as a slave. Oh, that word is kind of ringing out now, isn't it? It's not just an outward manifestation as a slave, but also on the inside, he took on that form or morphe. It's the attributes, the very characteristics, the inward qualities that a slave has. I mean, he's really a slave, a doulos. He's a slave of the Father, actually. He's a slave to serve man, but really, who is he slave of? At this point in time, he emptied himself. He took on this form, totally submitting every part of his will to the Father. Everything. That's what it meant to come to earth. And he's always been in agreement with the Father. But when he took on flesh, there's a submission involved in what the Son does. And He's eternally Son, eternal Father. There's, there's the eternal Spirit. Three persons. One God. Incredible. Luke twenty two twenty seven. That He would come to this earth and be a slave. That's what Paul was saying. For who is greater? He who sits at the table... Or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. He says, I should be the greatest, right? And he is. But he says, I serve. I'm among you as the one who serves. He came to serve us. He came as a ransom. Are we getting the person of Christ? We know this. This is nothing new. But when you start peering into these deep truths, the majesty of Christ, the supremacy is incredible, isn't it? What He has done for us. And that's why we celebrate this time of the year. What a text that Paul gave us here. Let's move to verse 8. Here we get this 
Definitely this incarnation. We see what He was. He comes a slave. And now being found in appearance as a man. Okay? We've seen Him as God. Then we've seen Him as slave. What other story has this kind... I mean, whatever the religion has this kind of story. They would always have Him as king, wouldn't they? But He didn't appear that way. Slave and now a human. He associated with people like us. Oh, that's those people like that. I don't want to be like those people. Right? We, we know those kind of people. You know what? That's us. We're all in with those people. We're all sinners. That's how God looked at it. As us being unrighteous. With sin. We're all in that same boat. Unless Christ does something. Unless He does that sacrifice. Now the word being found as an, uh, an appearance as a man or He became like man, your versions might have. The word is homoiomate. And when you say the word homo, that sounds really bad. You can't even say that word anymore. But that's a Greek word and it means the same. The same as. So that's why you have homosexual, the same sex. They have sex with the same sex. Okay. This word is used throughout uh, Scripture. You'll see this root word. He was the same as a man. Homoiomate. The same as a man. He literally... I want you to get this. He just didn't make believe. He literally became a human. A God, the God, became human. And we know that. We know that that's at the heart of the Gospel. You know, the Incarnation, I mean, if anyone denies the Incarnation, I don't consider them to be Christians. Can't they? This is an incredible thing. Our finite minds cannot understand it, but we must believe it. The Incarnation is a fundamental of the faith. It's like the resurrection is. It's just as important. He had to become a man. He became human. 100% God, 100% man. Now, to get into a little bit of technicality here, and I don't want to go too far, I don't want to go too deep on this, and our Monday night Bible studies, for instance, Lord willing, we'll start back up in, in January. We've got to get a little plug in there, right? But we go a little bit deeper on Monday nights sometimes. And maybe not. I don't really try to call a difference. You know, Sunday, should it be less than what Monday is? And I hope not. It's the Word of God. But a lot of times we get into the history. And usually I don't have enough time to work with that here. But um, there was a thing early in the church where they struggled with this, as I said earlier. And along about 431, there had to be a council. The church had to get together because there was some man that came up, um, Nestorus. And he came up with this doctrine that actually, uh, as far as his human nature is, uh, there was too much emphasis on the human nature over the God nature. What they had to come up with was the two natures of Christ. Christ has two natures. We're talking about one person here, but with two natures. Nobody here, nobody in the world, nobody ever who's ever been born again can ever claim that but Jesus Christ. He had the nature of man. He had the nature of God. They had to define this. They came together and debated it and went over it and over it went through the Scriptures and they came up with the fact that 100% God, 100% man. Um, Nestorus was wrong and they ruled him totally wrong. And that's, that was an important doctrine that had to be put forth. Along about 20 years later in 451... There was another uh, one, and it was called Eutychianism. And uh, along came the fourth council of the church, and they all had to come to get together at, at Chalcedon. And what had happened is that uh, certain individuals had put much, too much emphasis on the divine nature. So now we have, yeah, he's, he was man, but he was really, he was all God. And he's no longer man, whatever. It was too little of his humanness. Yeah, there's no way that God can take on flesh. The answer is this, that the two natures are absolutely inseparable. You cannot divide those two natures from Christ. 
two natures. Two natures, one person. And just like the Trinity, you have one God, but three persons. The person of Christ is only one person, but He has two natures. And so therefore you get a mighty doctrine called the hypostatic union. Has anybody ever heard of that? That Those were key elements as they argued about how we can define this because it was going to run into cultism where they would go to extremes one way or the other. Uh, he was The likeness was true of the inside. Truly human. The mystery of the incarnation. And, and so we go into verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. The word schema is now an outward thing. Remember form? Where we said that is morphe and it's taking on the inward qualities. Now we're talking about schema. Or we get our English word scheme. Now we're getting into the outwardly. He was seen as a man. He took on the very outward looks. He outwardly manifested himself as a man. So it's different than Morphe here. We've already seen the inward qualities are there. And outwardly, he has two legs, two arms, uh, you know, a heart, all the same, you know, the organs. He is fully man, just like any other man in that sense. He didn't look like an angel. He didn't come down having an, a halo over his head. Remember the pictures that you've seen where Christ is being born, you have a halo? Where in the world did that come from? He didn't have that. It's amazing. You, you see all the different things that have come down through history, all the fallacies of the Christmas story, and even the we know about the three kings. Where did the three kings come from? Well, the three we have three gifts, but it could have been could have been two kings. It could have been multiple kings. It could have been dozens of them. But uh, anyway, we go on and on with that. But. Um, he didn't come looking like a holy man. He didn't look like he didn't, he looked like a man. He experienced the things that humans experience. He came through his mother's womb. He was he was born like a real baby would. The only thing is, he was not she was not impregnated by a man. It was God, the Holy Spirit. He got hungry. When he was hungry. He was hungry, just like you guys. And I imagine it's going on noon, and I'm sure your stomach is saying, I didn't eat breakfast this morning. I'm starting to get a little hungry. <laughs> a little bit sleepy. Maybe you uh, stayed up a little later last night than you wanted to. Thirsty. Did he have all of those? Boy, he could have just been where he never got thirsty. Yeah. Hey, I don't have to do that. You guys have to drink something, but I don't. Watch. I'm going to go for ten weeks without drinking water. He didn't do that, did he? No, he... We know that um, God put it in him to do what he had to do. Was he ever angry? Sure was. As always righteous. We know about the temple cleansing, don't we? Uh, was he ever grieved? Yeah. Um, did he ever shout because he was angry? Yeah. Did he ever cry? You think as a baby, you think he actually cried? Yeah. It's what we hear when babies cry, but not in a simple way. He's a human being. He dressed like people dressed. Put on the same clothes that they did. He put sandals on. He walked around the earth like that. He put his robe on. And even an undergarment like everybody else. He looked just like everybody else. He was born in an insignificant manger, in an insignificant inn, in a real insignificant village, raised in a very humble home, he was a tradesman. His father was a tradesman, a carpenter. And even when he took on his ministry, nobody really knew who he was. And John had to point to him and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nobody really took him as being God. Nobody really recognized him. There was no aura about him that people say, That's God, I'm going to hang around him until he opened their hearts. He spoke with a man's voice. And it didn't come out with echo and reverb and had that godly type sound. I'm sure as he preached to thousands, he had a very blessed voice though. 
And I'm sure as he spoke to over 5,000, 15,000 people that his voice was very much up in shape. Kind of like George Whitfield out in the fields. Only more so powerful. Even though he said things that no one had ever heard, they still couldn't believe he was God. And even though he showed the power through his miracles, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, he healed diseases, he fed multitudes, and yet they still weren't sure if he was God or not. Unless God reveals that to them, they're not. Because it's not natural to believe something like this. In fact, the party line of the Jewish leaders was this. He has this power. We know that. We've seen it. It's undeniable. It comes from Satan. They couldn't deny what he did right in front of them. They said, ah, well, it's Satan's power. Christ humbled himself. Found in appearance as man. Would you agree that he is totally human? Totally God. He humbled himself. He humbled himself as he obeyed in his life all the way up to his execution. He lived a perfect life. Bethlehem, Nazareth, his ministry, the cross. We go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us. That's a key word as we'll be looking at next week. Redeemed us. He bought us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Boy, is that humbling. He was willing to be called cursed. Anybody that would be hanging up on a tree like He was, as He was put on the cross, is absolute humility as they stripped Him naked, hanging up there on that cross. Joseph probably taught Him how to make a table and a chair, other things for other people. And yet He's making these things with His hands, and He was the Creator of the universe. He's the one that gave them that wood. He washed His feet. He washed the feet of the twelve. But yet... One of these days, they will bow before Him, confessing Him as Lord. All people will. His life was lived humbly. And the ultimate is the cross. That's where everything's pointing to, isn't it? All the way to death, He was obedient. And then He even prayed to the Father, Father, you know, take this cup from me this cup of death, this baptism that I'm going to go through, baptism of death. But he says, yet not what I will, but what your will is. You see the humanity there, but you see the deity there. Obedient. Such a painful, shameful way that he chose to do it. We would never have thought of this wonderful, majestic story, would we? Do we have a great God? Does it make you want to shout with joy? What grace! And now we look at the best part. For this is what it's all about. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, because of all this, right? God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We have to take a few moments to talk about this. Because this is where it's all leading to. For this reason, because of this. Therefore, the reason that He submitted to doing all this, the reason He submitted to humiliation, to its ultimate, the reason He perfectly obeyed the Father and accomplished redemption, 
God, we know, raised Him from the dead. He raised Him from the dead as a sign of God's satisfaction over His death. And then God exalted Him to His own right hand and bestowed on Him the name above all names. Now, if you look in Romans 10, 9 and 10, we see a great confession. Did you know that the word confess means to agree with? When we confess sins, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God that we have sinned. We confess. The word is homo or homo. Remember that word? Same. Logeo. Word. Same word. Same speaking. We are agreeing with. We're saying the same thing that God says about our sin. When we confess or homologate our sins, we're saying what God says about us. That's why confession is so important. Now, he's going to use that word in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. That if you confess, homologate, say the same thing with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, see it's a heart matter, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You're not ashamed to tell people that you have trusted in Christ's sacrifice. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. He was put to shame at the cross, but we are not. They will. Now, we see that other people who do not believe and the people who do believe are going to recognize Him as Lord. Now, His name is Jesus, but we have to take it one step further. Yeshua, Yahashua, Jesus. What's it mean? Exactly. He will save them from their sins. He is the Savior of the world, of the sins. Sins, Savior. Yahashua, Jesus, Yeshua. That's a great name. But that's a very popular name. Joshua, the book of Joshua, basically that same name, that same root. That was a normal name for kids to be babies, to be named. There were a lot of Joshua's or Jesus's running around. That word is not unusual. So anybody could be called Jesus, Yeshua. People aren't naming Him that today, although in Spanish I see the word Jesus. When I first saw that, it shocked me. They actually have the audacity to call themselves Jesus. And that's really what it is with Jesus, but it's Joshua also. His name also is something even more so than that, that human name, Jesus, which is so vital and so important. I'm not saying don't say the word Jesus, but they'll also call Him what? Lord. He is Lord. He was always called Jesus. As that little boy running around. But people are going to affirm His Lordship. And they will give Him appropriate submission and worship whether they are believers or not. Whether they are angels or demons. Everyone, wherever they're at, in the heavens, in the earth, below the earth, they will say, he is Lord. They will bow the knee and say, Lord. To me as a Christian and to you as a Christian, that is the best thing that we can do, isn't it? To be on our knees, recognizing His Lordship. I'm the slave. He's the King. He's the Lord. I'm underneath Him. I want to do His will in everything. That's where we want to be. But the people in hell, they'll actually say this. That the name of Jesus, there's that name there, every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue, everybody, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, back in the early church, when Christians went around saying that, and they did, the Roman Empire said, go to that person and have them confess that Caesar is Lord. If you kept saying Jesus is Lord, what would happen? They'd kill you. They'd stone you. They'd hang you. 
or put you into the Colosseum and let the lions rip you up because you said Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is God. He is Lord all over all. He, he is man. He remains to be God though. He is God putting on a king's robe now in this section. But when He came here, He took off His king's robe and put on a beggar's rags. He is God the judge rising from the bench and going to the gallows of a criminal when we look at the Incarnation. He is God impoverishing Himself, beggaring Himself, exposing Himself to evil's spite. He did not spare Himself until He makes it all the way to the cross in Jerusalem on that hill. And that cross becomes the sum and the sign of His selfless, emptying humiliation. And He did it for us. He did it for me. He did it for you. For us. Substitutionary atonement. He took our place. When He took our place, our sins were paid for, paid for forever, never to be held against us anymore. For righteousness has been put on us. He says we are to confess Him as our Lord, as our Master, as our King. And we receive it. We receive that salvation. And the way we receive it is because He has picked you to come into His kingdom. And it's irresistible when He gives us that grace and we recognize our awful, terrible sin. He offers salvation. He grants us repentance. He grants us faith, that instrument. He grants us His grace. And we will go on forever in the presence of God. We have already started eternal life. We know this all started before the foundation of the world. But we see it happen in time and space and matter at the cross. That's the incarnation in its fullest. And we'll see Him forever because He was made like us. And we'll see Him as He is. Let's pray.